Day on the Dan Cave, my thoughts on Earl Thomas, Michael Kendricks, the return of the Seahawks running game, and why the Rams game is irrelevant. We'll put a bow on the Mariners season and take an early look at what I think the team should do and will do this offseason. And to celebrate the release of the first Steve Perry album in almost 25 years, I'll give you my top five journey songs of all time. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. So some fun with computers today. Threw a little reverb on the intro. Don't know if I like it or not. Actually, I think it kind of sucks, but hey, it's my podcast. I can do what I want. <laughs> 12 episodes into this, uh, still kind of dialing things in, figuring out what I like and what I don't like, and, and uh, feel free to chip in with your opinions as well. Seahawk headlines this week are real cut and dried. Earl Thomas to the injured reserve list, Will Disley along with him. We'll talk about what both of those things mean, obviously. Also, Michael Kendricks suspended by the NFL. I have thoughts on that. And a couple of corresponding roster moves. The Seahawks re-signed Maurice Alexander, former Rams safety, was with the team all through preseason. And they also promoted tight end Daryl Daniels from the practice squad. We'll see how he fits in. Let's just get right to Earl Thomas. Can the Seahawks never, ever play a game in Phoenix again? I mean, that that field, it's it's just a house of horrors. It's obviously where Super Bowl Forty Nine occurred. It's where Cam Chancellor's career came to an end last year with the neck injury. It's where Richard Sherman's Seahawk career came to an end with the ruptured Achilles last year. And it is seemingly where Earl Thomas's illustrious Seahawk career came to an end as he rebroke the same leg, the left leg, that he broke in 2016 on a touchdown pass in the second half. One play, one tragic play, and the layers to this story are almost unending. Both sides can claim evidence that their position in this whole contract squabble was the right one to take. Earl obviously sees this as, see, this is why I wanted long-term security. This is why I wanted my salary in my new contract guaranteed against injury because you never know what can happen or when it can happen. Meanwhile, the team is thinking, thank God we didn't give him injury guarantees. He could be breaking down physically. We'd be on the hook against the salary cap for years to come just like we are with Cam Chancellor. By the way, if Earl is pissed that he doesn't get those injury guarantees this offseason as a free agent that he wanted, he can just call his buddy Cam Chancellor and say, thanks for nothing, because the Seahawks saw the results of that. The league saw the results of that. Ultimately, there are no winners in this game. Both sides took risks. The Hawks took a chance they could get one more productive year out of Earl Thomas and either help the team win on the field or recoup in a trade some sort of compensation and there are reports that a trade was being worked on with the Kansas City Chiefs that they had lowered their demands to one second round pick that the Chiefs were actually in the process of figuring out how to clear up some cap space to fit Earl Thomas in their payroll this year and that that trade was going to happen in the next week or two the trade deadline is October 30th so now there will be no trade Earl Thomas will most likely 
become a free agent this offseason. I doubt the Seahawks would use the franchise tag on him, especially considering the bad blood and all the drama and coming off two injuries. Earl will turn 30 next year. So the Hawks are going to lose him for nothing. They gambled and lost. And let's put an end to this whole idea that, no, 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 he'll leave in free agency, but but he'll sign a big enough contract that the Seahawks will recoup a third-round pick as a compensatory pick through the league's formula. That's not going to happen. Because to understand the formula is to know that every player that you lose that's signed by another team in the NFL is offset by a player that you sign for a similar amount of money. The Seahawks right now are going to get no compensatory draft picks in 2020, even though Jimmy Graham left for bigger money. Paul Richardson left for bigger money. Sheldon Richardson left for bigger money or a one-year big deal. They would have gotten third or fourth round compensatory picks for Graham and Richardson, I believe. But they signed too many free agents on their own. Ed Dixon, Barkevius Mingo, DJ Fluker. They would have to cut some of those guys in order to get back into the formula. The Seahawks stand to have almost $70 million in cap space next year. We've talked about this a lot. This is why 2009, or 2018 is such a key developmental year because then they'll have money to spend on key free agents next year. Whatever Earl Thomas signs for in the open market is going to be offset by somebody that the team brings in. So there will be no compensation for Earl Thomas at all. Meanwhile, Thomas has probably lost millions of dollars, or at the very least, he's lost millions of dollars in guaranteed money. He'll still probably get a contract in the open market this offseason that looks good on paper. He'll be able to talk about the total value and the average annual value, and he might even get someone to pay him close to the top of the safety market, which he desires. But it's not going to be Cam Chancellor guarantees against injury. It may be more similar to the deal that Richard Sherman negotiated for himself with the San Francisco 49ers, which is now biting him in the ass, where a large part of the money that makes up that number that you can advertise that you signed for is in per-game bonuses. Sherman has an injured calf right now, missed last week's game, lost out on hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just didn't get that money because he wasn't on the field for that game. So Earl's going to have an opportunity to make some money, but it won't be the guarantees that he wanted. And I still argue that if he had played this whole thing differently, been a leader, come to camp, told the team he wanted to retire a Seahawk, been a good locker room guy, helped with the young guys, kept his mouth shut, the Seahawks may have been more willing to give him the kind of deal that he's probably going to sign in the offseason. And one other side note. Give me a break with this whole, he's a warrior and he's a leader. Willie McGinnis was saying on NFL Network the other day that that he, even despite how unhappy he was, he was a leader and he showed up and he was there for his teammates. And that's why he took the field because he's a warrior. No, it's because he didn't want to lose out on $850,000 a game. And he's quoted as saying that he's on camera when asked about why he reported week one. He said, my agent and I talked and we decided that was too much money to miss out on. Not because he's a warrior. These guys are playing football for a living. Stop with the tears, really. I don't feel sorry for Earl Thomas. 
Okay, I cut the tip of my finger off two weeks ago. I'm a bartender. That was a really, really difficult injury to get through. I didn't cry about it. (laughs) I know, it's not the same thing. But hey, you try to relate things to your own life, right? And then the whole flipping off the Seahawks sideline. It pissed me off that day. It's a it's a it's a bunk move. It's a bush league, minor league move. It's a childish move. Unbecoming of a quote unquote leader. And it's also unoriginal. Marshawn Lynch did that years ago. Come up with something new. But it's it's just who Earl is. It's me against the world. It's poor me. It's nobody respects me. It's the way he has to build up a chip on his shoulder so he can perform. Whatever. The question now is, could this in some ways be a blessing in disguise? Rip the Band-Aid off. Get him out of the locker room. Get him away from the team. Let everybody breathe. Let the young guys, let Tedrick Thompson, who was the starting free safety all through training camp, and then goes back to the bench when Earl shows up, had a great preseason. The team's fourth-round draft pick from last year out of Colorado. He gets a chance now. He might succeed. He might fail. But now he gets a chance. He gets to breathe. He get, the, the air is cleared. It was very, very toxic. As much as Pete Carroll tried to manipulate the situation and make it as pos- positive as possible, it was very toxic. Earl Thomas was really the last man standing with the bad attitudes. Michael Bennett was traded away because of his attitude. Richard Sherman, in many ways, because of his attitude. We found now, even though Cliff Averill was forced to retire because of an injury, he had a piss-poor attitude in his reaction to Super Bowl Forty-Nine and how he approached meetings and practices and things after that. Earl was really the last guy. The last me, 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 me guy. And now the defense is Bobby Wagner's to lead. Highest paid middle linebacker in the league. But he gives you everything you want for that kind of money. The performance on the field, his leadership, the things he says, the things he does. That's a guy to build around. And that's a guy that'll get a third contract and and be a Seahawk for life. So how does the safety position pan out now? So Bradley McDougald, who's been playing at a Pro Bowl level. If Pro Bowl votes went out today, he would have to be in the Pro Bowl as a starting strong safety in the NFC. He's going to stay at strong safety. He can play free and strong. And there's some thought that maybe it would be best to put him at free safety, play some of these other guys that we have, Shalom Luani, Delano Hill at strong safety. But this tells you how much the team likes Tedrick Thompson. So he's going to be your starting free safety. McDougald stays at strong. And now, because the Seahawks like to play a lot of three safety, that that big nickel, they call it, now there will be an opportunity, finally, for Delano Hill, last year's third-round pick, who hasn't shown much, to get on the field and play. Shalom Luani, who they traded a seventh-round pick to the Raiders at the end of the preseason for, will get a chance to play now. So we'll see how those guys do. And, you know, talk about uh, being thrown into the fire. The best offense in the NFL comes to town this week. An offense who just shredded the Minnesota Vikings, who had the number one defense in the league last year. Jared Goff threw five touchdown passes, a lot of long balls down the field. 
plays that if Earl Thomas were healthy, he would take away. We'll see how Tedrick does because he's going to get tested. So jump right in there. Um, the team did bring back Maurice Alexander this week. And what's interesting about that, I I don't know, can he be ready to play some safety this Sunday? He's certainly familiar with the scheme, being there all preseason. Um, so he could be that third safety in the big nickel, which is really intriguing because he is more of a big, strong safety, almost in the Cam Chancellor mode. Because of that, the team was was tinkering at the end of the preseason before they released him with having him play some weak side linebacker. And that's a key point because the NFL suspended Michael Kendricks and KJ Wright still isn't healthy. This whole cleanup procedure, KJ should just be out a week or two thing, out the window. It doesn't look like he's going to be back until after the bye at the end of the month. And so now with Kendricks being suspended indefinitely by the NFL, Austin Calitro, the second-year undrafted rookie, is going to have to get the start. And he played really well in the Bears game when Wagner was hurt at, at middle linebacker. So we'll see how he performs there. But Alexander was playing some of that position too, and he could be an option if Wright is going to miss uh, even more time. Let's talk about the Michael Kendricks thing because this is absolute 100% classic NFL bullshit. Just to recap, Michael Kendricks was charged with a felony or multiple felonies for insider trading. He had inside information about how a company was going to perform in the stock market. He invested some money. He made a big profit, over a million dollars, I believe. This happened over four years ago. He has since, um, well, he signed with Cleveland in the offseason. He was a starting linebacker for the Eagles in the Super Bowl last year. Signed with Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland feels like he didn't tell them the whole story or they misunderstood the case. And once the news broke, they released him. Seahawks signed him. And I didn't like the move at first. But once I saw the widespread acceptance for this white-collar crime and how it really became a non-issue, I was okay with it. Um and Michael Kendricks is a really good football player. But here's what stinks about this whole thing. The NFL suspended him indefinitely. What does that mean? Indefinitely. Implies that they haven't sifted through all the information yet. Haven't been able to figure out exactly what they should do as far as a suspension goes. How is that possible? He pled guilty months ago. He's paid full restitution. He's paid every penny back. He cooperated with authorities. They have all the information in front of in front of them they're going to need. And his sentencing isn't until the end of January. So there's been some speculation this could mean he'd miss the entire season, which would amount to a 12-game suspension. 12 games for a white-collar financial crime. Here's some names for you. Derek Coleman got four games. Ezekiel Elliott got six games. Josh Brown got six games. Rodney Allen got six games. You know what they did? Domestic violence. They beat women. They assaulted women. And they got six games. Michael Kendricks might get 12. The team knew he was going to get suspended. Everyone knew he was going to get suspended. But come on. Give him his two or three games, whatever, and let him carry on. 
at least throughout the rest of the season. And then he's going to be sentenced, and he is likely going to have to do some prison time. He's 27 years old. I mean, he's still going to have football ahead of him when he gets out of prison. He'll be 28, 29. I think the maximum is 30 to 36 months. Probably won't serve all of that. It's it's really ridiculous. And it doesn't just piss me off because Michael Kendrick's a good player, really good player. And he, alongside Bobby Wagner, was a great tandem. Um, it'd be, it, It'll be fascinating to see how this case works out and then also whether the Seahawks are open to bringing him back in the future. But shame on you, NFL. Shame on you. The loss of Will Disley is a big one. The rookie tight end out of Washington was a huge surprise, was probably the best draft pick to this point out of this really, really good draft class. Uh, just on a simple play in the first quarter, uh, slipped going down after catching a pass on the sideline and uh, ruptured his patella tendon, the same injury that Jimmy Graham suffered a couple years ago. Uh, he made a full recovery and was ready by the next, um, the beginning of the next season, even though he got hurt much later in the year than Disley, so it should be a full recovery. But really, it was a loss in the game because they only dressed two tight ends. So Nick Vanette was the only healthy tight end for the rest of the game. And um, that had to affect the game plan because Brian Schottenheimer loves to use those two tight end sets. Didn't affect the running game though, but we'll get into that in a second. The loss of Disley is a big one. Um, Daniels was with Brian Schottenheimer last year in Indianapolis, also a former Husky tight end. Um, known as a good blocker, was actually used as a fullback in some sets in Indy. So he should be able to to slide right in as the number two tight end. And then Ed Dixon should be back at the end of the month for that uh, first game after the bye against the Lions on the 28th. He even tweeted that date, October 28th, 2018, a couple days ago, indicating he will be fully healthy when he's ready to come off the uh, non-football injury list. And he will be a welcome sight um, to pair with Vanette. Uh, Dixon's an outstanding blocker in his own right. Also, um, really showed as a pass catcher last year when Greg Olson got hurt for the Panthers. So they can't get him back soon enough. Uh, we talked last week about the importance of the Arizona game. If they lost that one, which for a time in the third quarter, it looked like that was possible. Uh, that would have spelled doom. They would have been one and three coming home to play the Rams, looking at one and four, and then having to go on the road and, and fly to London. Now two and two gives them a chance to make this season relevant. Okay, and this is why I say the result of the Rams game is irrelevant. It really is. In the big picture, first of all, we're not even in the Rams league. It's it's they haven't just caught us. There hasn't just been a changing of the guard. They went flying by us at 180 miles an hour while we were broken down on the side of the road. The Rams are the class of the NFC right now. I didn't think Jared Goff was a franchise quarterback. Sean McVay is a genius. Jared Goff became a good quarterback last year. He looks like he's on the verge of being one of the elite quarterbacks in the league now. He carved up the Vikings last week. He's been accurate. He's been smart. He's been aggressive. You can see the confidence building. That confidence wasn't there when the Seahawks won that game on the road in L.A. at the beginning of last year when he missed that throw to Cooper Cup at the end of the game that would have won it. He was, he was unsure of himself then. He's not now. But they're the hottest team in the league. They're first in the yard, first in the league in yards, second in points. They've given up some yards and points on defense. That defense was supposed to be dominating. They've struggled. The Vikings moved the ball at 
pretty much at will against them. So the Hawks will have a chance to get some yards and score. They do have Bobby Wagner this year. They didn't last year when the Rams ran him, but I just don't think, first of all, I don't think that we have a chance to beat them Sunday. Well, there's always a chance, but I, I don't see it happening. In fact, I think it's going to be a fairly comfortable victory for the Rams. But it doesn't matter in the bigger picture. This year isn't about, this team can't get to the Super Bowl. This team can't win a Super Bowl. Probably can't even win a playoff game if they were to sneak in. Just not deep enough, not strong enough in some areas. But that's not what this year is about. This year is about getting to next year becoming a contender again. If they do things right. So there's still a chance. Still a chance to get to that 9-7 and seven that I predicted. I said 8-8, eight 9-7, eight, and seven, but we'll feel good at the end of the year going into 2019. So even if they lose to the Rams, the sky will not be falling. I know we're going to hear it. Oh, oh, the Seahawks are terrible. They're horrible. They need to blow everything up. Schottenheimer's bad. Russell Wilson needs to go. Carroll needs to be fired. Whatever. This game does not matter. So let's say they lose. Let's say they lose 42-7 to again like they did last year. They go to London to play the Raiders, who have one win, and it was a an overtime win against Cleveland. Winnable game. Then you get your bye. You get rested up. You get some players back. K.J. Wright will be back after that. Ed Dixon will be back, as we talked about. Other guys that have been playing banged up will be healthier. Then you get the Lions at home. I'm sorry, that game's on the road. You get the Lions coming off a bye. You get the Chargers. It's funny how when you look at the schedule at the beginning of the year, we thought the second half was going to be murderer's row. It doesn't look that much anymore. Then you go on the road to the Rams. Forget about that one. Then you play the Packers. Packers are a flawed team. There's issues there. Saw another headline this week. Is it is there trouble in Green Bay between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy? Very, very flawed team. The Panthers, solid not spectacular, up and down. They're 2-1, and one, but that that's a winnable game. And then look what's happened to the 49ers now. Those games looked scary going into the season because they were everybody's darling pick this year. But with Garoppolo out, winnable games. The Vikings are 1-2-1, and one, and they play the Eagles this week. They could be 1-3-1 and one after five weeks. Who would have thought that? And that once dominant defense, if they're missing some players. And there's some struggles there. Not as scary of a game as we thought it was going to be at the beginning of the year. And it's in Seattle. You get the Chiefs who are flying high right now, obviously. But that'll be a home game. And then you finish with the Cardinals. Nine wins still possible, even if you can't beat the Rams. So don't put too much into this week. I'm I'm saying that to myself as much as you guys. Like, I'm trying to approach this game as, hey, I'm going to watch my team play and uh, let's just see what they can do and maybe pull off a shocker. But in the meantime, we've seen that running game now, two games in a row, progress, really progress. Pass protection was better against the Cardinals. But that running game, we talked about the difference that Fluker and Sweezy playing guard made in the Cowboys game, and we were looking forward to seeing how it would look with Justin Britt. Well, it looks great. Even without Chris Carson, Mike Davis went over 100 yards, two touchdowns. The team as a whole ran for almost 180 yards. They were absolutely dominating the line of scrimmage against the Cardinals. Second game in a row they've done that. 
So let's look for progress there against, obviously, a really good defensive line in the Rams. Let's take another step forward. Let's see Russell make some good decisions. Let's see him not get away from the run too much, even though they're going to be playing from behind. And remember that upsets can happen. Remember when the Eagles came to town last, last year and they were the darlings of the league and they were flying high and Carson Wentz was going to be MVP? And the Seahawks played a near-perfect game in all phases and comfortably beat the Eagles. It can happen. But if it doesn't, don't freak out. We'll still be talking about the same process for this season. Speaking of process... We've reached that time again where we get to watch playoff baseball, and it's so awesome, and we're standing outside the party looking in the window. We're not invited. We don't get to play. The Mariners obviously missed out on the playoffs in in a weird, weird season in the American League for sure. They won 89 games. If 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 I had asked you at the beginning of the year, would you take 89 wins for your Mariners this year? I think you all would have said yes. And you probably would have thought it would have given us a wild card spot. 89 games. And the Mariners were 10 games out of the playoffs. So it feels like it was a bad season because of the way they were playing in May and June. And, and they looked like a lock. They looked like a sure thing to make the playoffs. Even without Robinson Cano after his suspension, they played even better for about a month. And then it all fell apart, and the way they finished just made that whole first half of the season seem as if it was a farce. Ten games out, even though you won 89 games. And so now the question is, what do you do moving forward? And there's already some hints and, and trying, to, trying to parse Jerry DePoto's words. How do you compete with Boston, Houston, New York, Oakland over the next few years? With our farm system, or lack thereof, and some of our bad contracts and older players, how in the heck are you going to compete with those four teams? 108 wins, 103 wins, 100 wins, 97 wins, respectively, for those four teams. Boston and New York obviously have all the financial power available to them. New York's especially dangerous because their payroll was essentially the same as the Mariners this year. They have a lot of young players contributing at minimum dollars. The Yankees are going to be players for Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, you name it. Dallas Keuchel, Patrick Corbin, they're going to be in on all those guys. They could get better. And they're going to be motivated to get better because they saw Boston win 108 games. Boston, same thing. They got some young, cheap players and they can spend as much money as they want too. Houston has some payroll constraints, but they'll they have a really strong system and they got more young players coming. They're not going anywhere for a while and Oakland was the surprise team in the league this year. Nobody projected them to win 97 games. They did it with a patchwork starting rotation, so they'll have to put that together again next year. They'll they'll probably take a step back, but will they step back far enough for the Mariners to be able to catch them? My question is, should they even try to catch him? I think the answer is obvious. It's fool's gold. 
The 89 wins was fool's gold. I think the right course of action, I feel the same way I did when I was really emotional about how they blew that San Diego and Oakland series that would have kept him in the race six weeks ago. I think they should sell anything they could sell, build up the farm system, get some big-time prospects back, build a young core, try to build it the right way so that three, four years from now you have sustainable contention. That would be when Kyle Seeger's salary is off the books. Last year's the final year of Felix Hernandez's contract. We got five years left at Cano, but he'll be at the end of it and most likely a part-time player or a DH by the time this rebuild were to come to fruition. Jerry DePoto would be the right guy to do it. He has a real eye for all the talent in everyone else's system and how to get value in trades. The Mariners, for the first time in 20 years, have marketable, tradable, valuable, desirable assets on their major league roster. And some of those guys, their value will never be higher. Edwin Diaz right now could fetch a massive return if you traded him. As could Mitch Haniger. Marco Gonzalez probably could. James Paxson has two years left of, of control contractually and isn't going to be making top-end starter money even through arbitration this offseason. He could fetch you a ton. Mike Leake would get you some serviceable pieces. Gene Segura has a ton of value. Ryan Healy is young and a power hitter, and there aren't a lot of good first basemen in the American League. D. Gordon would get you some return. Alex Colomay certainly has value on the open market. You could stock the farm system with high-end prospects and get some young players in return that are ready to play in the majors today and start that process. What will they do? Same thing they always do. I had hoped that this Mariner ownership group, led by John Stanton, would be different than the old Nintendo group led by John Ellis and Howard Lincoln. Chuck Armstrong. I I was wrong. They appear to be cut from the same cloth. They're so scared of attendance being affected that they can't bring themselves to do a teardown and a rebuild. They cannot bring themselves to do it. And so what they'll likely do is tell Jerry DePoto, you can tweak the roster. We'll give you about $180 million payroll again. But you got to figure it out. Try to do what the A's did. Get some guys off the scrap heap for cheap, some pitchers trying to make comebacks. Hope you hit lightning in a bottle. Try to win 90 games again and hope everybody else kind of falls apart. And they'll put a team on the field that will have good weeks and get everybody excited. And they'll do bobblehead giveaways on the weekends and draw decent crowds and have 2 million fans turn out again. And they'll miss the playoffs again. Is there a middle ground? There is. If all you did this offseason was trade James Paxton, Edwin Diaz, and Gene Segura, 
and presumably Alex Colmey then, all-star closer from two years ago, would become your closer. You'd get somebody back in the Paxton deal who's younger and who's ready to step into the rotation right away. Segura would net you possibly a young shortstop who's ready to play every day. Or, or, or some combination of those three guys being traded would bring you back some young players that you can fill those holes with around the veterans that they keep. Could that work? You hit it right on a couple of bargain free agent starting pitchers. It could. But are they willing to do that? Again, I don't think so. I don't think this front office would approve a trade of Edwin Diaz because of the PR backlash. And that just that just kills me. And if that's indeed what happens and this team just keeps motoring forward with the same old plan year after year after year, even though they have a brilliant general manager that they're letting waste away by not allowing him to do these things, then my enthusiasm as a Mariner fan is going to do nothing but wane. I would still watch him. I'd still go to a couple of games, but the passion just wouldn't be there if I didn't feel like they were trying to build towards something. And John Stanton talked a big talk when he took over. We're going to compete for World Series. That's what we're going to do. Well, we need to see it, and I don't think we're going to, and it breaks my heart. And here's really the first piece of evidence you'll need to see as to whether there might be some forward thinking and aggressiveness this offseason. If Nelson Cruz comes back as a Mariner, then it'll epitomize everything that's wrong about this ownership group. Because at almost 39 years old, even as productive as he is, and the money he'll demand, taking up at bats from younger players, landlocking our lineup because you won't be able to play Cano at DH anymore, wasting Daniel Vogelbach's skills, it'll just tell me that all they care about is selling tickets and and catering to the casual fan who's going to be super, super excited to get Nelson Cruz back because I have a Nelson Cruz jersey. But (laughs) screw those guys. I want to win. I want to win. I don't care what the names are on the backs of the jerseys. I want to win. I hate watching teams like the Milwaukee Brewers who two, two years ago were terrible. And now they look like they could win a World Series because they made some shrewd moves. They were aggressive. They went out and got young players who made an impact. Anyway, that's where we're at with the Mariners. So I wanted to finish with this. I've talked about this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I'm still giddy. We all have our idols and our icons and people that we look up to and people that impact us on a daily basis. Um, for me, those are most of those are from the athletic world and the musical world. Huge, passionate music music fan. Music's part of my my life every day, and one particular person has been literally part of my life every single day since I was about thirteen years old, and that's Steve Perry. Um, I became a huge Journey fan at an early age. And that's really what fueled my love of music overall. And I just want to say this. If you're turning up your nose at the at the mention of the band Journey, it's because you don't really know Journey. And this is this is not unique to them. This happens with a lot of bands where their their perception of who they are is based solely on their singles. 
and not their entire catalog. Journey's catalog, especially their early one, is extremely diverse. It's it's rhythm and blues. It's flat-out blues. It's Motown. It's rock. And yes, it's pop. But if all you think of Journey is don't stop believing in open arms and faithfully, then you're missing out on one of the most talented groups of all time. Finally got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. One of the greatest guitar players of all time. One of the greatest keyboardists of all time. One of the greatest drummers of all time. Three of the greatest songwriters of all time. And Neil, Sean, Jonathan, Kane, and Steve Perry. And Perry went away for 24 years. Said he lost his passion for music. Had to step away from it. He was burned out, bordering on PTSD. Said he didn't even listen to music for decades or, or over a decade, for years and years and years, didn't even listen to music that had lyrics in it because it would remind him of, of what he was missing and how much it, it hurt. He would only listen to ambient music. And then he got the passion for songwriting back a few years ago through a relationship with a woman, and then she died, and it inspired him to continue writing because she, she made him promise to not isolate himself any longer. And so yesterday came out with, well, first officially today, you can listen to it on Spotify. It's called Traces. You can listen to it on iTunes. Um, I received my copy two days early of the deluxe CD with 15 songs on it. It's hand signed by Steve Perry. I'm a little bit of a giddy fanboy right now, but it just made me, it's, it's made me reflect a lot on the journey catalog as well. And, and the new album is amazing. It's emotional and it's, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's intimate. And um, if you're just a casual Journey fan, you're not going to like it, most likely. But his voice, even at 69 years of age, is still so rich and unique, and that tone is unlike any other, and I consider him the greatest vocalist of all time. So I thought I would make this more accessible, and I want to do these top five lists on a regular basis. Uh, they'll be about food most of the time, <laughs> movies, TV shows, um, silly things like that, because that's what I spend most of my time thinking about. My top five Journey songs are going to blow you away. It's not... Faithfully, it's not open arms. It's not don't stop believing. It's not even lights and wheel in the sky. These are my top five favorite journey songs of all time. Escape, the title track off the Escape album that had don't stop believing on it. It's the, it, it. Back in the album days, it was the first song on the second side. Never was a hit. Only diehard fans would know it, but yet it's been in their live shows for 30 years. It's a, it's a, song that rocks it's up tempo it has huge background vocals it has a complete tempo change in the middle of it amazing song stay a while one of their greatest ballads i believe and um back in the in the early 80s they would always combine it with lights so coming out of lights they would go immediately into stay a while it's a beautiful love song i've dedicated it to my girlfriend on a number of occasions. Um, it's simple, and it's just Steve Perry at his best. There's a deep cut called Something to Hide on the Infinity record, the first record they did with Steve Perry. And it took me 10 years to figure this song out. There is an outro by Neil Sean where he plays a guitar piece to fade out and finish the song. And for years, I thought it was doubled. I thought he recorded the same piece in another octave over the top or, or underneath that main guitar part or used an effect that doubled the guitar part. I discovered 
10 years after the record came out, while I was listening to it one day, I heard it in a different way. And I went back and listened to it again. And sure enough, it's Steve Perry's voice singing along with the guitar piece on that outro. And then I was able to even find old videos on YouTube of him singing it live. And it's absolutely spectacular. There aren't many people on the planet who can do that. Uh, kind of my guilty pleasure is a song called Ask the Lonely. It was on uh, a movie soundtrack for Two of a Kind with Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. It's a typical pop, rock, up-tempo journey song with a huge chorus and background vocals. And it's also, again, one that only the diehards really know, but yet the band has played it live for 20 years and still plays it live with Arnel Pineda singing uh, lead vocals even to this day. It's been a it's been a standard of theirs. And then my my number one all-time favorite journey song is called Mother Father. Again, it's on the Escape album. Uh, but listen to the live edition of it. If you go to Spotify, type in Mother Father Live. Um, vocal gymnastics from Steve Perry with runs and high notes that uh, are hard for anyone to match. And it's also a very emotional song about um, the inner dynamics of a dysfunctional family. So those are my top five journey songs of all time. Escape, Stay a While, Something to Hide, Ask the Lonely, Mother, Father. Thank you for listening to The Dan Cave again. Episode 12 is in the books. Next week, we'll really dig in. Like I said, the result of the Rams game is inevitable, but it's going to tell us a lot. Can they be successful running the football? How does Russell Wilson look? How do the young guys on defense look against that great offense? It'll give us some clues as to what we think can happen over those next three or four weeks when they could push themselves back into contention for a wildcard playoff spot. And so please tune in next week. Go Seahawks. We'll start to know more about the Mariners in a couple weeks as free agents begin to file and moves can be made. But but we'll talk primarily mostly Seahawks for the next few weeks because the Mariners won't be doing much. So follow me on Twitter, please, at Seahawks Forever. You can listen to this podcast through the Anchor app or Spotify or Apple. Um, you can leave me voice messages through the Anchor app. If you want to give me some feedback and I can inject those into the show, you can email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Please interact with me on Twitter. Give me your thoughts on the podcast or any ideas you have for future shows, things you want me to talk about, questions you may have. Once again, go Seahawks, go Mariners, and thanks for listening.